Welcome to the School of Travel's podcast. I'm your host, Becky Gillespie, and each week I bring you stories of how travel can truly change your life if you take the chance to get out on the road and step out of your comfort zone. My guests also share travel tips and lessons they've learned along the way, which I hope inspires you to let travel be your teacher. Good morning from Chiang Mai, Thailand, listeners. This week, I interview EJ Hall, who, when I met him, was living in Japan for the first time while also working. It was interesting to hear someone's perspective on what it was like to have so recently moved to a country and learned how to set himself up there. I'd never heard of someone being inspired to travel through their love of music and also a great love of art. So I think you're going to enjoy EJ's perspective on how he sees the world when he travels as we discuss trips to four different continents. Welcome to episode eight of the School of Travels podcast. And today I'm here with EJ Hall. Thank you for joining us, EJ. Great to be here. EJ, first of all, I'd like you to tell us how we met. How do we know each other? Well, uh, we are currently living in a share house in Tokyo in the neighborhood of uh, Yoyogi Uehara, if I pronounced that correctly or not. But uh, it was kind of funny. For the first month we were both in the house, we never even saw each other. And I kept hearing about a woman who was there from Ohio, and I'm sure she was hearing about a man that was there from Ohio. So thankfully one day um, we, we bumped into each other in the... Uh, you know, living room of our space, and uh, we were talking about, you know, what we, uh, how we travel, so, yeah, it's kind of funny. Yeah, it was funny. I was like, the man from Ohio, and then, of course, I felt like there was an immediate Ohio connection. <laughs> so, I mean, Ohio people are all friendly. We had to have this interview. We're both from Ohio. But besides being from Ohio, what else can you tell us about yourself? Well, um, I'm a creative. I work in food advertising for six of the last eight years. I've worked at an agency that specializes in emerging food brands. And uh, what I do is a little bit of digital, a little bit of product packaging, stuff like that. And uh, it's all food. Food is uh, sort of what inspires me. And it's, it's one of the things that... Um, gives me an excuse to travel, just to go around the world and get inspiration for my work. So one of the things I was really curious about talking with you about was the fact that this time in Japan is really your first time to live abroad. Is that right? Uh, yeah, I um, am in Tokyo for three months, and I'm just basically working my job. I'm working um, nocturnally so that I can be concurrent with my office in Columbus, Ohio, just because uh, that means I'm as productive as I can be. And I'm really grateful that my employers are giving me an opportunity to to travel and work. This is my first time doing that, so I want to make sure I don't drop the ball on any of the projects that they trust me on. So, yeah, uh, this is my first time um, out of the out of the United States for for more than about a week and a half. <laughs> wow! So I'm really interested to get deeper into that in this interview. But um, I have to say, I have to ask you, like, when did you first feel inspired to travel? How did this all begin for you? Um, well, you know, I've always been someone that was interested in the world around me. I was a uh, unfortunately not unfortunately. Uh, I was raised in a, in a lower middle class family in Ohio, and we never had the means to do any traveling. But um, because of our Sunday school and other reasons like that, I got to know people from all around the world. And I also got to know 
people who traveled all around the world. Uh, when I was a child, one of my favorite things was a postcard collection. Whenever anyone we knew would go around the world, um, they would send me postcards uh, from Australia, from Hawaii, I mean, even from Kentucky. I was just always delighted to be getting uh, postcards from all around the world. Uh, How did that start? Was, were they people from your Sunday school that heard that you liked postcards? Or? Yeah, I think it was just my mother's idea. Um, I must have been seven or eight years old, maybe nine years old, and, and she asked someone to send me a postcard, and, and um, I think it was actually, um, I got a, a book to collect them in, and, and each time I would get one, I, I would read it, and I'd look at the stamp, and I'd run to the globe that we had, and uh, a globe was a really important thing in our household. I didn't get to travel the world, but anytime we heard a story or got a postcard, my mother would make me find it on the globe and, and think about where it was. So, um, yeah, and, and, you know, just a couple years ago, when my parents were moving, they found that old postcard book, and that was really a blast from the past, something that I'd almost forgotten about. But... You know, that, I think, was when I first started thinking about different parts of the world, because I never was able to, to travel in my youth. A few long road trips from Ohio to Chicago or Ohio to Minnesota, and then one time um, got on an airplane to go to Disney World. That was about it. So <laughs> travel wasn't accessible when I was a teenager or even in my 20s, so... But it was always something that I dreamed about. I guess your first trip was, was were those family trips that you just mentioned. What was the first trip that you remember taking without your parents? My first trip that I took without my parents probably was in college when my friends invited me to go the last second to see the band Fish. And uh, I, I just started listening to the band and I couldn't get tickets to one concert um, but on the morning of the concert somebody called me up and said hey we have an extra ticket for you do you want to come in and not being a very good student in those first years of college <laughs> I was like yeah uh, so I got in the car and ended up driving to Pittsburgh and then the next night driving all the way from Pittsburgh to Indianapolis and then the next night driving to Chicago and I think I was about 19 or so and that was the first um real road trip or anything I did that, you know, was, was a spontaneous adventure. So uh, that, was, that was a real fun time, and it was fun because it wasn't planned. Or it was planned, but it wasn't planned with me, and then I got to jump in at the last minute into a packed car. Yeah, and to be with people, too, is a great way to start that first trip, perhaps, without your family or something that's so familiar. And those were some rocking shows that... That show in Pittsburgh was a great show. For, for those who don't know, could you describe what kind of music Fish <laughs> plays? And maybe just a very brief background yeah, yeah. on the band. Uh, I think they're quite a special band. So Thank goodness we've got time. Long story short, they're just an improvisational rock and roll band that plays different concerts every night. So even if you go and see them three or four nights in a row, you're not going to hear the same song. Even if you hear a song you heard a couple months earlier, they're, they're going to play, they, there's a chance they might play part of it in a different way. Uh, every night, um, you're not sure what you're going to hear. So you can go and see them many times and, um, you know, have a different experience each time. Have you seen them many times? Uh, some 
Yes. Uh, so I've seen 66 fish shows. Wow. And to an outsider, that sounds like a lot. Um, but there's people that have seen 150 or 250. So um, that's that's a lot of shows. And um, <laughs> how long has the span been a band? Uh, since the early 80s. They celebrated their 30th anniversary a few years ago. And uh, same members, same, no, nobody's had any drug overdoses or died. You know, they've, <laughs> oh, yeah. they've actually gone on several breaks uh, for several years at a time and said, you know, they've even said they quit at one point but then came back. So hopefully they're around for a while because I, I think they're, they're really... Much, they've, they've come a long way as musicians, so they've, I said they play improvisational rock and roll, but at certain times in their career they've added other styles of music. Sometimes you hear funk, sometimes you hear blues, sometimes you hear a lot of jazz, some bluegrass, and it's all mixed together, and they're so in step with each other these days that, that the shows really can, can bring unexpected, you know, delight. It's a, they're, a, they're a fun band. I, I think in 2011 or 2012 I saw... 12 shows in one year, which is, I don't think I'm ever going to get back to that, but I really do hope that I get to see him a couple times a year. In fact, right before I flew to Japan, I made a couple day stop in Los Angeles and took my friend who had never seen them um, to the LA Forum, which to me was always a special place because I'm also a Parliament Funkadelic fan, and that's the home of the mothership. So, getting to uh, getting to go to the LA Forum where Magic Johnson played basketball, and you know Muhammad Ali had fights, is just cool. That's a another little reason that I grew to love fish was they sort of pushed me in a travel direction. I, once I had a little bit of disposable income in my late twenties, um, it was like, yeah, I can go to Denver. Yeah, I can go to LA. Yeah, I can go to Boston. And and they kind of got me an airplane to see music, which is which is not something that everybody's willing to do. Yeah, I have to say you're the first person I've interviewed that really has, has said music was the reason that you started traveling further afield. So that's really interesting. Yeah, and there's um there's a lot of things about the band that are kind of, you know, they're that are kind of goofy. So if people want to learn about it, I definitely think it's it's a hard thing to get into. Um, but hopefully one of your friends or someone you know likes fish and they would take you to a show. Or so. EJ, you know, he's yeah. ready to go again. I mean, New Year's Eve, uh, I was planning to go to New York City, Madison Square Garden, where they play every single New Year's Eve. But Well, of all this travel within the U.S., is there a trip that you could isolate that as your best trip or a trip that really impacted you the most? You know, my one of my first solo trips that I ever took, the, the first solo trip I ever took, was I drove across the country from Ohio to California and back. And uh, getting to see things like Yosemite and Monterey Bay and in other parts of the country, the Grand Canyon, getting to see redwoods for the first time, that was a special trip for me. Um, I would encourage anybody who has the time to drive across the country by themselves. Uh, it's, it's, it takes a while. And uh, one little thing that I noticed was when you're actually driving west, the days seem very long because you're gaining time. 
but then when you start to come back east, it <laughs> seems like you, you just can't make it as far. You're losing time, and the time zones are working against you. Wow. I've definitely, I've met a lot of people that have that as, as a bucket list item to drive across the U.S., even if they're not from the U.S. I, I still haven't done it myself. I mean, the middle part is kind of rough. I probably, if I do it again, I would want to do some more research ahead of time so that I can actually find things in northern Missouri and in Kansas and in, in Wyoming that I don't just drive by. Because I was en route to... California and nothing was going to get in my way. How long did that take to drive from Ohio to California? Um, I mean, it's it's not super long. It depends on how dedicated of a driver you are. I was able to put in 14 hours the first day, 13 hours the second day. <laughs> my goal was to get to Salt Lake City in two and a half days, and I got there on my second, the, the middle of my second day. So I was a whole day ahead of, of my schedule. And so it's just, I mean, if you're not stopping, uh, it's just about two and a half days to get to California. It's not so bad. Wow, the space and the size of the U.S. I forget sometimes because yeah. I, was, I, I was living in a much smaller country for so many years here in Japan. So, wow, <laughs> I've got to get to that someday. Okay, so you've traveled quite a bit in the U.S. That was your first trip alone, driving across from Ohio to California. Yep, yep. I'm really curious, what finally got you to go abroad after all that time? You know, I, I, got, I got incredibly lucky. Um, my brother-in-law's mother uh, works for an orthodontist who organizes trips to go abroad. And... Uh, she invited me to go to Tanzania. And now I had never even been out of the United States except to Canada, and that was before they required a passport. And uh, so I got my passport at age 31 to dive right into um, east, northwestern Tanzania, a town called Tarimi. Um, there was an orphanage school there that um, was started by the, this orthodontist, and it was called Angel House, and they were on a trip to, uh, with several dentists to just basically clean the children's teeth and then pull teeth of uh, villagers and anyone who was nearby. I mean, we're not fixing any cavities here. They're just yanking. So, yeah, I mean, I, I went with my sister, my brother-in-law, my brother-in-law's mother, who's great, and about, you know, 15 or 20 other people. And we got to experience, um, you know, what it was like in a, in a third world country. We were in a, a Western hotel, but even the best Western hotel within... 200 miles is not something that I was accustomed to. It was it was very difficult. So yeah, my first trip um, was to Africa. So I, I, in a lot of ways, it was really challenging. But after you do something like that, traveling by yourself to Europe or, you know, East Asia is really much easier. What was challenging for you? Well, I mean... Being from the United States, you're, you can 
you can see poverty on television, you can read about poverty, but when you see like real third world poverty in in Kenya and in Tanzania, um, it it slaps you in the face. Uh, I was on a bus in southern Kenya, and I we, we drove by a quarry, and in the quarry is a five-year-old child. I guess I kind of chuckled because it's stressful to me, but a five-year-old child breaking rocks, and I just you know my heart breaks, and uh, you see old women carrying giant loads of material on their own head because they don't have a cart or they don't have a, anything like that. You just you see this and uh, it, it just makes you realize how, I mean, no matter how poor you are in, in a country like the United States or in a, in, somewhere in, in Europe, that it's just not the same. There's not, there's not even any opportunity for, it's very difficult to find opportunity to improve and I was at a, a school in an orphanage, and you realize how much better the kids at the school had it than the kids that couldn't even make it to the school. So, yeah, um, I mean, and then just physical things, like uh, I didn't have enough discipline to eat enough food while I was there. I got to East Africa, and there's a certain spice palette that they use uh, it's it's kind of a little bit Indian I learned you know how much trade that India had with East Africa throughout the ages you know you come from the United States and you don't realize that the rest of the world's interconnected they don't teach you that um, and this spice palette is not bad at first but after several days when every single thing you eat tastes like this even a, a boiled egg somehow water tastes like this it starts to, to really turn you off. So after a couple days, my calorie intake just dropped. And my brother-in-law, who's pretty damn smart, he's an engineer, and he's, he's a great guy, um, he kept saying, like, eat this you know, bar, eat this peanut butter. I brought this, eat it. And I was like, I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to. So after a couple days of running around, I, my, uh, I, I, I kind of had a... I don't know, I, I was a, bel a spell of exhaustion. I, I kind of, I ran out of energy and, and I had to, t it took me 24 hours to, to, to even, you know, get back to what I was trying to do. Were you skipping meals completely or were you just eating very small amounts because you couldn't keep eating that same flavor? Yeah, I mean, I, I was, the way I remember it, I was just eating probably less than 500 calories a day. And I, I'm a big guy, I'm overweight, so for a couple days, my body was fine. And I, I fight through these things, but, you know, after four or five days, three or four days, you just, you can't take it an, anymore. So, if you ever are traveling to somewhere like East Africa and the food's hard to eat, like, you, and you're doing, you're running around and you're sweating... Like, you, you just, you need to eat. You need to either bring what you need, or you need to just buck up and eat. Um, it was, it was difficult. Um, several people on our trip got food poisoning. Um, oh, wow. My sister got some terrible food poisoning. I only got a tiny spell, only took me out for, for a morning. Was it, do you think it was the water? Um, it's, uh, it's the water for sure. My sister... She suspects that one of the orphans was drinking out of her water bottle. That was that's her theory. You never know where that comes from. But my brother-in-law received an electric shock in the bathroom. I'm in a 
I, we're in a great hotel, the best hotel, but your hot water heater is not grounded. So you, I touched a, a metal part of the hot water heater in my bathroom and I got shocked, but it, it wasn't so bad. But my brother-in-law got shocked so bad, he had to consider leaving the trip and going to a hospital. And you don't want to go to a hospital in East Africa, <laughs> in the remote part of the town we were. He ended up being okay, but it was very painful for him. And it, it was his hand was immobile for several days. <laughs> wow, I, I never actually, I would never have thought that to think about that as a risk. Hey, it's good just, advice to just, just be, be careful. careful. If they have your hot water heater in your bathroom, tap it before you grab it. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I have to ask, would you go on that trip again, knowing the hardships that you faced? Because I think those kind of things could have turned someone off to travel forever. I can, I feel that I've met people before that would have gone on a trip like that, first time abroad, and then these things happen and they're like, I'm good, I'm just going to stay in my town. But would you do it again? Yes. Why? I mean, Very much those, so, yes. All those difficulties. Um, how could you, how could you go back? You know, if you, if you would have asked me that question two months after I got back, it would have been probably not. It took me a long time, several months, to really come to grips, come to grips with the overall experience. It was a very difficult trip. I made a video uh, of the trip that is really great, and I couldn't even look at my own footage and start editing it for several, uh, probably six or eight weeks because it was such a traumatic experience. But, you know, time kind of allows the negative things to be muted and fade a little, and I still remember them. But with time, I remember the good things. I got to experience amazing things in Africa. I got to ride by myself on the back of a motorcycle, they call it a picky-picky, and I was brave enough to go to the market by myself, wander around. I needed, my hand was forced there because I needed a hard drive to store more footage. I was shooting so much footage, so I got to negotiate uh, for a hard drive in a market in Tarimi, Tanzania, and that was a fun experience. Long story short, the uh, shopkeeper was not willing to negotiate with me. I was trying to I was trying to barter and he's like, "No, no, no." And then my driver goes, looks at him and goes, "Friend." Points to him and goes, "Friend." And he points to me and he goes, "Friend. Friend." And then the, the and the uh, shopkeeper goes, "Okay, you can have it at that price." <laughs> so so there is always room for negotiation <laughs> even if they're telling you there's okay. Yeah, it was kind of funny. I, I, I mean, I, I understand and I don't get upset when there is a white person tax. That's fine. I, don't, <laughs> I would have paid full price for that hard drive, but it was just kind of funny. Like, friend, friend, friend. <laughs> so he pointed to us and it got it went through. So And one moment I had to Remy was the charity's founder, Lisa, wanted to walk down the main street to the bus stop where the school for the, the school children and, and ride the school bus with the children in the morning and no one else wanted to go with her. Now we're in a, a hotel that's got a big fence with big spikes on top and there's a man with a gun at the at the gate. Like this is not you're not supposed to be wandering around. But I decided I wanted to go with her and this was not in any way that 
I was feeling like I needed to protect this this woman. This woman was a very seasoned traveler. I was just kind of intrigued t- to do this. So at the crack of dawn, we got up and we left. We walked out the front gate. The concern on the uh, guard's face was palpable. And we walked down the middle of the street um, while the vendors and the other people were doing their thing. And I knew that everything was going to be fine, but I was still nervous. We got to the town square and got on the bus with all the school children, and they were singing as we drove to school. And, you know, these are the kind of things that um, I just, those are the things that I remember now. I don't like to talk about the negative things. It's um, getting to actually experience a culture like that and and East Africa is just amazing. So no, I I do want to go back. Um, We were scheduled to go on another trip, in fact, this year, but um, some there were some difficulties and I don't want to go into that stuff and these trips are delayed at the moment, but if I don't end up ever going back to Angel House Orphanage and School in Tarimi, Tanzania, I will be disappointed. Um, You know, they are doing good things there. I find it really interesting that moment when you were afraid of walking with Lisa. I've been told so many times that so many countries are really dangerous and you should never go there. But I've found that almost always when I like push past my fear and go out somewhere, do something, it's never as dangerous. It's never, I mean, yes, there are incidents that happen, but I think it's really important to keep pushing past those, those feelings of fear when you're thinking of traveling. Have you have you had any encounters where you were really afraid and then something bad did happen or you felt something? No, I've never had anything really bad happen to me. I mean, my worst travel experience is getting ripped off by a, a crappy Airbnb landlord in London. But that's not, I mean, again, these are, these are not terrible things. Uh, no, I... I, I understand why a lot of people are, are, are a little scared of some of these places. And, and maybe it's not the wisest thing to go out alone, but with the right guide or with the right advice, yes, you, you can travel to a lot of these places. Well, I, I would um, like to ask what happened after Tanzania. So when you came back... Well, that's a little story real quick. So long story short, I booked my own flights back and forth from from Africa and when we got to the airport at uh, Kilimanjaro airport and we were all boarding the pl- we were all going to board the plane I did not have the right ticket so what yeah everybody else got on an airplane and I was left behind and my on your very first trip yeah abroad. my little sister was oh. pretty was was pretty distraught I'll say without hesitation, it was absolutely better that it was me and and not someone else. But I I was was helped out by someone at the airport who got me a taxi driver who drove me through the night uh, back to Arusha, uh, which is about 50 miles away. And I went to a Western resort. Um, It was was pretty wild. (laughs) Yeah, I would say so. And then... Especially your first time abroad. Yeah, I I saw some things on that night drive that I'll never forget. I I mean, a fire in the distance and a a car accident with a man wielding a machete. And I didn't really have answers. I was asking questions, but my my taxi driver really didn't have answers. And so, you know, when I got to that western resort, which was opulent, 
I was very happy to be there. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so uh, I got home safely to the United States, but, you know, for a few minutes there, it was a little bit scary because Kilimanjaro Airport, major airport, 747s land there, but it's still only about the size of a turnpike uh, rest stop in the United States with, like, one restaurant, you know? Oh. <laughs> so you're, uh, they, they shut it all down. They said, you can't stay, so... Uh, yeah, that was... You were like trial by fire with this international travel thing <laughs> in a lot of ways. You know, so like I said, once once I recovered emotionally from, from that whole trip, <laughs> I, was, I was ready to go. I knew that there were very few places in the world that would be harder for me than that trip. I, th I think that's a really good takeaway, actually, like, so depending on the situation. It took, it took time to get to that. Like, I think for some people, maybe it's best to just jump into the fire and get through it. Like, it sounds that's kind of the trip. You don't have a choice, yeah. Yeah, that um, you chose for your first <laughs> international trip. It was, it was, in hindsight, a life-changing trip. Those things should be uh, like a service trip to Africa and... So I did make a video, a hyped up video with a lot of time lapse and I, uh, I brought these GoPro cameras and I gave them to the orphan children and they would run around and they would videotape and so I shot all this footage and I put it all together and it's, it's pretty darn cool. Wow. So. Can we put a link to it on yeah. the website? That would be great. I okay. All right. Well, then what happened? You came back from Tanzania to Ohio, I assume, and yeah. then... What was the next trip that you took? So I didn't immediately jump into any more international travel. I traveled around the United States a little. I went to Key West. I went to the West Coast a bunch of times. I, I like Colorado. I like Florida. After a job change, I, on short notice, decided I wanted to visit Japan. Oh. So Japan, um, I had several friends from college who studied Japanese at Ohio State. And as soon as they were done studying at Ohio State, they, they relocated to Tokyo. So I always knew that I had this group of people in my back pocket. So when I had a little time and a little extra money, I booked a short trip to Japan just on about two weeks' notice. Found a great airline ticket that was really a great value. Came here in March. Again, that was my first international solo travel. I had done Key West and gone to Los Angeles by myself, but uh, yeah, jumping into Japan, which is a very accessible country for uh, people when they're just starting out international travel. So if you're an English speaker, every, all the signs here are in English, everything can be very inexpensive, it's easy to get around, you just can't be intimidated by the subway and things like that. Yeah, don't when you first get to Japan, don't try to go through the stations at rush hour to get your, your first thing. Come here at a slightly different time if you can. <laughs> I, I would say, like, for some people, they think Japan is one of the hardest places to land softly the first time because they think that they will not be able to communicate. But I think in the last three to five years, there's been a lot more English signage oh, yeah. in Tokyo. But I still think when you get out of Tokyo or Osaka, it's there's still some hard going with the language. Um, but the people are incredibly friendly and polite, and it's the safest country in the world. Oh, yeah. So in that, in that respect, it yeah. is a great starting place. I, I do remember, um, you know, an, an aunt of mine going, Japan, is that going to be safe? And I said, <laughs> I said, oh, man, you need to learn a little more about the world. <laughs> uh, 
on, on a side note, um, so we live in this shared house with several people from Europe, and I've asked, I remember asking one of them, hey, would you, do you ever want to travel to the United States? And they look at me and they go, oh, no, the United States is far too dangerous. So we do have an addiction to guns in the United States, which I find appalling. And, yeah, from, uh, from an outsider's standpoint, the United States is more scary than a lot of these places, and that's that's shocking to a lot of Americans because we just sort of accept this gun violence and mass shootings as part of our as part of our life. You know, we don't even think about it. But you know, and, and, and when, for some of these travelers around the world, that crosses their mind when they're thinking about coming to the United States. So okay, you did Japan, and it sounds like it went well because you came back again. And it's my third time in Japan, actually. So oh. yeah, yeah, I do. It's it's easy when you have friends, and the friends are willing to take you out to some of the fun places that maybe most tourists don't get to go to. Right. Like heavy metal bars and, and Shibuya and, you know, things like that. Can you tell me a little bit about Paris? Because you told me before about your first time arriving there, and I know that it's a special place for you. So I, after a couple trips to Japan and, and Hong Kong and, and, and Africa, I never had gone to Europe and... Uh, I grew up in a house where my mother was always, you know, reading us classics and, and showing us art. And, you know, Paris and London are these places where Western culture sort of is at its apex. So Paris was a place that I always knew I needed to go to. Um, I was an art major in college, and so somewhere like the Louvre is sort of like a pilgrimage. It's, it's the special place. When I got to Paris, as soon as I got there and got to my hotel and, and, and wandered around just inside the, the central area of Paris, area um, inside the subway where it's all one price to ride inside that area, um, old, old Paris, I, I, within a few hours I, I took a deep breath and I was like, man, I do not need to rush around this city because I will be back. I'm going to be back for every season. I'm probably going to come back a dozen times in my life. Oh, so that wow. really set me at ease. I didn't need to rush around. I didn't need to wait in line to go to the top of the Eiffel Tower. In fact, I was only there for five or six days, and I didn't even go to the Louvre because I, I know that I'll be back with a, with a vacation that is, has a singular purpose of just spending three or four or five days in there. Wow, so, so you still haven't been. No, but I went to the, the Pompidou, the uh, Modern Art Museum, and that is, uh, you absolutely, if you're an art person like contemporary and modern art, that's, that's the place to go. I know that the classics are at the Louvre, but I want to see uh, the giant Calder uh, mobile outside and the modern art inside. Is, it, that's sort of, sort of my thing, so... And, and my mother, too, she likes the modern art, so she always has displayed that, shown me that when I was a child. So, yeah, seeing, seeing that is, was almost better, but, you know, the Louvre is, it, I'll be back, I'll be back for you. <laughs> it's, your, your experience is interesting because I've only been to Paris once in university, and it was just two days, and I went to the Louvre right away right. and just saw the two pieces of art that I felt were most important and ran out of there again because of the timing. And so, yeah, yeah. sometimes it's not the, the thing to do to go to those number one, number two spots in the right. city. 
I don't think I needed, I didn't need to go to the top of the Eiffel Tower. Uh, simply walking around the Eiffel Tower is, was good for me. And I, I happened to book a, an Airbnb that was uh, on like the 13th floor of a building. And those are very rare in Paris. And I had a, a, I had a view of the Eiffel Tower. I hope this isn't too offensive, but I could even see the Eiffel Tower from my toilet. I was able to, to see the Eiffel Tower set in Paris instead of seeing Paris from the Eiffel Tower, and that was good enough for me. I might never get to the top of the Eiffel Tower, and that doesn't even bother me. Uh, one thing that's cool about the Eiffel Tower is you know it's tall, but when you get there, you realize that it's tall and it's set amongst all things that are short, so it seems so much more grand. If, it was, if there were 30-story buildings around it, it wouldn't seem quite as grand, and it's... And I was, it, it, it sparkles for five minutes at night at the end of every hour. It's, it's pretty darn cool. But I saw the line and I was like, two hours? There's no way I'm doing that. I did some things in Paris. I did these Airbnb experiences, which I highly recommend. I, I, I went to the market with a woman who was a chef and a cookbook author. And we bought food and we went back to her apartment and there were several of us couple couples in love and then me who was falling <laughs> just head over heels for this French lady chef oh man oh right and, uh, <laughs> she lived in a houseman apartment in Paris and it's just grand and she cooked us a meal and I'm like oh my god like <laughs> this is this is what I want to do and uh then I did a sidecar motorcycle ride at night that was an I, Airbnb experience yeah I, wow. uh, I went to Montmartre and played uh Pentonk, which is like a, a tossing game uh, with some French guys and and just it was that's that's what I want to do I want to pretend like I'm a local in these cities so uh, Paris was so easy and if you don't get caught up in waiting in lines and you just want to live like a local there are narrow streets and, and, and wonderful food one thing a little, little bit of funny thing I so when you're an American there, and I'm a big American boy, um, you know, they, they make assumptions about you. I, I'm in a restaurant, and I order escargot just because I want to try it. And the waiter brings out a bottle of ketchup with it. Why are you bringing out a bottle of ketchup? So uh, they made me laugh. I, uh, I, could get a, I could get more offended. I think I was probably a little annoyed at the time, but... <laughs> <laughs> Wow, that is the first time I've heard of that happening. Um, what do you travel for, would you say, these days? When you travel, like, what are you most excited about doing? Food or the shopping? Not the shopping, although I want to buy, I do need to push myself to buy art when I see it. Yeah, for me, I tell my, my boss that I'm traveling because I want to be inspired for my job. I work in food advertising and uh, it's such a blessing to work in that category. I'm a, a foodie but I'm not someone that's super interested in what's the most current food trend or what's an expensive food trend. I, I've never gone to a Michelin restaurant. I don't really plan to unless things change in my life and I make more money. But I like to learn about the different cultural foods that are important. I like to, to eat them. I like to talk to the people that cook them. I, uh, I really seek out markets. If there are night markets, I want to go to them. Um, and I want to eat street food. I want to see those things. So my goal is to, to 
live like a local, eat like a local. Um, I'm not trying to experience high culture. I'm trying to live the way that maybe middle class or people or below live in these cities. Um, How do you do that when you go to places? I mean, the internet gives you so much info these days. I, I almost can't fathom what it would be like to travel the world without a smartphone in my hand uh, that has got maps and it's got reviews. And so I, I can find, like, this is a great ramen shop and it's off the beaten path. It's in a train station. Or these are the best crepes in Paris, but they're a couple train stations away from the hip district. So, yeah, I, I like to do a lot of research online about, about these kind of things and then I'll, I'll kind of I'll kind of wander and uh, when I have places marked on my map that are close by I'll go check them out. I try not to have super um, rigid plans. Now there's there's certain times you go certain places and, and you gotta do it but I'm probably the person that's gonna avoid your tourist traps you know I'm gonna uh, or I'm gonna go during an off season I don't want to be there when everyone else is there and I might miss Someday I'll have to do Paris in the spring, but I'll try to find a way to to do it when there's less people around. I think we have reached a point in travel where things, certain places have become so crowded that that's a really good tip and Italy thing to remember. Slammed. I'm just hearing, yeah. my mother wants to go back to Italy, but she hears these horror stories and I'm trying to tell her, well, don't go to Florence, don't go to Venice, let's find other places to go. And uh, we'll see, I hope she does it does make it to one of those other places. Yeah. Well, now I'm going to ask you a big question, and I've had some people find this to be quite a difficult question, but what do you think that travel has taught you about life and about yourself? This, this long trip to Japan has made me really miss my cat. I, I do miss Aww, my cat. I you miss the cat at home? <laughs> and actually Aww. this... Uh, if I do continue this digital nomad thing, I think my next step was is probably going to be within the United States, just so I can bring my cat with me. Okay. Um, uh, yeah, travel, uh, you know, it it just it reminds me how fast the world is changing. The first time I came to Tokyo, um, I don't I'm not a heavy drinker, but I had been out drinking, and I was walking back to my apartment, and I was buying a kebab in the hip Japanese neighborhood of Shibuya, and the, the um, Middle Eastern gentleman serving me the kebab is playing 90s R&B. And so like, I, I just had this, this realization, like, and I know it's, it's, it's a common thing to say, but the world is getting flat, and if you don't go see it now, like, who knows how westernized it's gonna be? Who knows how far you're gonna have to get off the beaten path to see something authentic? So that was kind of a, uh, a spark right there. Traveling reminds me how, how, how lucky I am, how privileged I am to to be able to have a passport and enough income and I, I have a, a job now that allows me to take off as much time as I desire um, and that's such a privilege so um, there's there might be a time in my life when I'm not gonna be able to travel as much uh, and so uh, traveling just as taught me to live in the moment to enjoy what I'm doing at that that time because I if even if I come back to that spot at that time uh, it won't be the same so my in my opinion one of the best things about solo travel is 
how sensual it is, how your senses are the things that are on fire. Uh, when you're with another person, um, you can have a deep connection with that person, and you can, and there there are benefits to traveling with other people. They can take you places that you wouldn't normally go, but when you're by yourself, um, you will seek out sounds and smells and things that you you would miss if you were with another person, even if you were in that other person you were were really in tune with your environment. When you're by yourself, um, it's all I mean it's it's easier to find things that others don't notice. So yeah, I, there, I've had a lot of special moments traveling alone as well. I would agree with you there. So I have the, this question, what are the three things that you can't travel without? So I have, I'm a table tennis player, so I bring my table tennis paddle with me. Are you? Um, oh, I did not know. And that's always fun because I can, I can go to a, a table tennis club and in London or in Tokyo, and even if you don't speak the same language, you're friends with the people there. It's a, it's a niche community. It's a sport of kings. You can win a gold medal in it, unlike some of the other sports that make more money. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, and so t- I, my father's a table tennis player, and uh, while I've gone through points in my life where I, I've not played, I always try to travel with, with, my, t- with my paddle just in case. Uh, I met someone at an airport on the way here who also was carrying his paddle, and we're friends. We're going to be meeting back up again when I get back to Columbus. Uh, this is a stupid question. Do you also bring ping pong balls? No, the balls, balls are there. Okay, they're, they're, they're all right, all right. Club. I'm like, oh, how does but this the, work? That's, yeah. that's fascinating. Um, I, for me, I'm a, I'm a creative, and I like to make videos of my travel, but, uh, and this is going to sound a little mean. Some people make videos that are way too long, way too in-depth. <laughs> I, I mean... It, if I'm if you're gonna if I'm gonna ask for 45 seconds of your time, it, it better be spectacular. So one thing that I carry with me is a cell phone gimbal or like a stabilizer for my cell phone, and that just really makes a lot of cell phone fit- footage look a lot better. So like a little tripod for it or something that holds it steady. It's a it's a three axis stabilizer. So you hold it in your hand, but when you move, it takes out a lot of the shaking and it takes out a lot of the stuff like that. So, okay. a cell phone gimbal is what the official name is. You never know what you're going to be able to get in other countries. So I make sure I pack my dandruff shampoo. Otherwise, my he- my head will scratch too much. So oh, yeah. I love my Head and Shoulders. It's a brand that I am very dedicated to. So I got to make sure I bring that with me on travels. And then you know, this is kind of an uh, not an uncommon answer, but man, I can't imagine traveling without cell phone data, no matter how much it costs or where you need it. So ah. um, I, I feel that even if I'm somewhere and I, and, and I am technically lost, if I've got a map on my phone, I feel like I'm not lost. So can always get back to where I need to go. Do you have an American plan that will give you like 2G? I know there's some plans you can get 2G in every country. Where you land, or do you buy a SIM card when you get to that country? How do you get data? So I did, uh, for a few years, I uh, had a plan with AT&T in the United States, and they would just, they could, I could use my data overseas. But before I came to Japan, I, I did the smart thing and bought an unlocked cell phone. So okay. now I can just throw any SIM card at any airport in the world in it, and I've got data, and it's usually fast. I, I've been to... 
Korea and just didn't even think twice about it, within five minutes of landing, you are plugged back in. Do you, you buy them at the airports or yeah, in Europe? Yeah. yeah. And uh, you might be able to get some better deals on the internet. I have a buddy that buys them ahead of time in bulk. But for me, just when you get to the airport, it's usually right after you exit, um, like customs, they have someone there trying to sell you a, a SIM card. Was it five, eight bucks a day? And thankfully, um, that's within my price range. So yeah, it's worth it. I'll add in here, listeners, that like I've had a couple of airports where there weren't sell SIM cards available at the airport. Um, and so in that case, I think it's really important to screenshot, take a screenshot of the address of your hotel uh, and the phone number of your hotel, just in case you have to show it to a taxi driver and go somewhere else to get your data. If you don't have a, a plan that gets you data right away, um, because that has been a challenge when I could not get my data. I agree with you that it's very important. Yeah, I, I can't even fathom traveling the world without data so also do you use google offline maps do you download the offline maps uh, I, you know i i haven't but i should it's a that's also a really good uh, piece of advice yeah. when you can't screenshot or you need the more information that's not related to data yeah. so if you check on uh, listeners online you can just go and there's a section in your google maps app where you can download a, an area offline and you'll have it and it will work for you without data no those are good things ping pong table tennis uh, table tennis well okay yeah you look ping, sensitive ping about pong them. Is what you play in your basement <laughs> what's the difference I mean, table tennis is an Olympic sport. You can win a gold medal. You need you need uh, you need good lighting. You need a proper floor. You need the proper height of your ceiling. You can't have any air conditioning units blowing over the table. I mean, there's a lot of things. No, <laughs> I, I want to know the difference. I want to know the difference. I, I feel like I have what's, offended what's the table tennis not, players not of the really. world. I'm, I'm being a little <laughs> bit of a stick in the mud. But what's the difference between hoops and basketball, right? It's the same thing. Okay. All right. Fair enough. Fair enough. All right. Well, where do you want to travel to next? What is next after Japan? You've been here three times. Um, my, my top two destinations are places that I've kind of been saving, and they are places that have thousands and thousands of years of history and culture and both of them I want to get off the beaten path and it's you might be able to guess they are both China and India I mean in China's just changing so fast I feel like I have to get there because you know with their social scoring system coming in they might not even let me in in a couple of years uh, and can you explain a little bit more about that people that aren't aware um, long story short um, China's, you guys should definitely double check me on all this, uh, but China is instituting what they're calling social scoring. So in, like in the United States, we have a, a financial credit score. And so everything you do when you buy a house or use a credit card, you get this score. But theirs is taking it to the next level. And everything they do in their life is, is, is going into this composite score. And but what makes it even stranger to a Westerner like me is that the people you associate with also influence your score. So if my friend murders someone, and I'm his friend, like it's going to hurt my social score. And uh, from what I've read about it, the Chinese people, the regular, you know, average everyday Joe in China, sort of wants this because there's so much corruption in the middle levels of government. In their local government, in their regional governments, there's so much corruption that the, the Chinese people put a lot more 
um, they care a lot more about uh, their social circles. Their social circles, if your social circle is full of good people, this score will, will might help you. So, but it is it is a to a Westerner it, it is feels very big government. So, uh, getting back to, to what I was saying, the uh, who knows in a couple years they might go like, oh, this they might look me up on the internet. This guy has said a few bad things about China. This guy's friends with this guy from Hong Kong who's not allowed back into China. So I might get to China, and I'm I'm sort of guessing here. And they might say you really aren't welcome to come to China, or you're not allowed to leave the big cities. So I don't, I don't, we don't know what's going to happen, especially for Westerners. But if if you haven't read about what they call social scoring, the social score in in China, which is uh, pretty much going to be going into full effect next year, 2019, and they started it in about 2013, and it's it's going to change things. Um, and I don't know, it's 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 fascinating from a Westerner's standpoint and I was talking to our housemate who's from Hong Kong and and you know from uh, an Easterner's standpoint or a Hong Kong Chinese standpoint it's not like Orwellian big government because they already have that uh, it's it's a little different and I, I don't want to be close-minded about it but at the same time like you know, I, I don't know what to expect. So part of me feels like I need to go to China soon. The other the other big one for me is India. I uh, didn't pay much attention to India uh, for the first 30 years of my life. And then I was lucky to get to work on uh, some big Indian food brands that are in America. And by getting really deep into these brands and Indian food, learning about the difference between northern Indian food and southern Indian food and Indian food from some of the other western parts like uh, Gujarat and, and like learning about these things, um, I just I started falling in love with India and learning about how many different cultures are there and how many different peoples are there. I just I'm intoxicated by, by India and so um, both these countries um, deserve months of, of travel, and I don't know how I'm going to make it happen, but I feel like if I don't go to every region in China and every region in India before I die, I will just be, I feel like I, I've cheated myself, because they are, they have so much more history than we do in the West. Like, these are the true cradles of, of civilization, and our Western culture is so new, <laughs> so I don't know. Those are my places. Um, and now, um, just on other places I want to travel, um, Cuba, because being an American, Cuba was a forbidden place. Mm -hmm. And then there's been some political opening and closing, and I really should have immediately gone there when they opened it up, and I don't know what's going to happen. But uh, I want to go to Cuba and ride a motorcycle around that island. And then my real distant bucket list item is Papua New Guinea. Oh. where only 70,000 tourists go a year. And if you wander off the path, you could get eaten by a headhunter. <laughs> and I wouldn't even be that mad. Like, <laughs> you probably... I mean, you can't be, be that mad if, if you if you go where you're not supposed to and they catch you. I don't know. I, again, uh, you mm, guys You should. sound like a very adventurous traveler. Well, those those are... I hope I make it to all those places. I know I'll make it to China and India someday, but... Papua New Guinea is, f for me, a, 
will be a reason that I end up traveling to Australia. Australia is not high on my list, but when I go to Australia, it will be so that I can also travel to Papua New Guinea. Wow. All right. The, this, you have some amazing adventures ahead for sure. Um, uh, do you have any advice for people that, because, you know, you've so recently kind of started this more international travel and dipping your toe into many different travel experiences. Do you have any advice for people that are still afraid, that are waiting to take that trip they've always wanted to? Well, you know, when I've had a few friends ask me, like, what's the first step to really traveling solo? And, I, and, and, and quite simply, I think the best advice is to just book something. That, don't think it's too hard about it and book that first trip. Uh, I mean, book the airplane, book the hotel, forget about it for a few weeks, just just put the money down, get it paid for, and, and, and do it. I mean, when you take your first international trip, especially your first solo trip, um, you will be surprised at how many other people are out there doing it, about how you will be forced to talk to strangers, to waitresses at restaurants, to people at bus stops, because you're by yourself. So it's not hard. And like I said, the best advice is to just not overthink it and just do it. You know, the hardest trip is the first one. And then when you get to be a little bit more seasoned, you'll start to realize, like, I don't need to take all these clothes. I can either wear a shirt twice and then wash it, or, you know, I can buy socks and underwear anywhere I go. Uh, and then... I don't know, when you're, when you're tired, you need to rest. Like, I, I know I've pushed myself too hard in certain places, and, oh, I set my alarm clock for 7 in the morning, and I go, 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 and it's like, you know, there's nothing wrong with not leaving your apartment for most of a day. You're only in the city for six days. Like, it's okay. Spend six hours recovering. It's not a big deal. So. And yeah. like what you said about Paris, like, you can always go back. Oh, yeah. So just, I, I like thinking of it that way when I'm in any place because that it calms me down. It makes me not feel that I have to be so, have such a scarcity kind of mindset with it and, and run myself down. You know, maybe I, maybe there's certain places I won't go back, but I, I shouldn't think that way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for that advice. And where can we follow you or look for your food, even your food advertising? Is there a place that we can go? Oh, uh, yeah. Um, Check me out at artdirector.live. I know it's a, a weird thing. I'll also have it at liveartdirector.com. Uh, you'll be able to see a combination of my portfolio, but most importantly, um, uh, just go. That'll lead you to my my Instagram, where I I really just try to make very short but impactful uh, travel videos that are under a, under a minute long. Like I. I promise you that if I ask for 45 seconds of your time, I'm going to maximize it and not ask for any more. So you'll be able to see my video from my trip to Africa, which is longer than that. It was, it was a while ago. And uh, some of my trips, I got to do a, a road trip across northern Japan. I got to do some other things like that. I've seen pro wrestling in Japan and a lot of fun little clips on there to check out. What is your Instagram name? Uh, it is my full name, which is... Everett.j.hall, and that's E-V-E-R-E-T-T dot J dot Hall, and I kind of want to check that again. <laughs> okay. Uh, but I'll ha it'll definitely be linked from the portfolio. 
Thank you very much, EJ. Thank you so much for sharing all of your stories with us. Well, it's great to be here. I love to, to talk about my travels. So, yeah, um, I, I hope that you guys enjoy it. I hope EJ's stories have inspired you to think about that next trip that you want to take and how you're going to experience it once you get there. I have to say that as we spoke about in the interview, Airbnb experiences are actually becoming one of my favorite things to check every time I get to a new city. They actually have some here in Chiang Mai, and I went on a trip last week that was fantastic, a trip to this place called the Sticky Waterfalls here. The guide was so friendly. All the people who had found this tour were really nice, and I actually met an American girl there traveling by herself that I ended up meeting with later in the week and had a great time with. So you never know what these tours will bring. And Airbnb experiences, the way to find them is to go to airbnb.com and look up the city that you're trying to visit. And if you see at the top of that search, homes and then experiences, and you click on experiences, you'll see all these different tours that the locals are offering there. Uh, If you don't see the experiences icon pop up at the top of the screen, that means that they're just not available yet in your city. But Airbnb is expanding this service so rapidly that you might see something within the next six months to a year. I wouldn't be surprised. So check those out. And I thought this week we'd leave you with a travel quote from Paris, as EJ loves Paris so much. And the quote is from one of America's greatest writers, Ernest Hemingway. And this is from a book that was actually published posthumously from notes that Ernest had received In 1957, I believe, he received a trunk full of his old diaries of the years that he had lived in Paris in the early 1920s. And from 1957 onwards, he started writing a memoir, collecting all these diary entries and notes that he'd made about his time in the early 1920s. And he finished the book in 1960. And then his wife, he had at the time of his death, she did final post edits and the book was published in 1964. And for all those Hemingway fans out there, we know that Ernest died in 1961. So this is a really interesting book that was one of the final books he wrote. So the quote says, if you are lucky enough to have lived in Paris as a young man, then wherever you go for the rest of your life, it stays with you for Paris is a movable feast. And that's the name of his book, A Movable Feast. So check that book out, listeners. Stay tuned. Soon we're going to shift our interviews over to Chiang Mai. And I'm going to actually do a couple of episodes about travel tips and travel places. And uh, yeah, I hope you have a great week. Thanks for listening to the School of Travels podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd love for you to subscribe and leave us a rating wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks to The Sam Chase for allowing us to use their song, In a Perfect World. Don't forget to join us next week for another episode, and remember to always let travel be your teacher. If you keep your options open, there are places you will go. They will treat you like the kings and queens your parents thought you'd be when you were born. You'd see it all with your head up standing tall, and you'd look back and think it's funny. 